0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 30. I am your host, Jack Henneman, refreshing and raring to go after the week off. This episode is the Spanish on the Atlantic coast and the strange story of Don Luis, which sets us up for Francis Drake's exploration of the Pacific coast and the first English attempt to colonize in North America at Roanoke Island. We are recording this episode on July 15th, 2021, in Austin, Texas. Let us again set the table, since all of this conquistador stuff can get confusing. Spain is the most powerful country in the Christian world. Her king, the bookish, pious, and hardworking Philip II, concerns himself with the world. In Europe, he has been at war off and on with and in France, Spain's most powerful geopolitical rival, in Italy, and with the Muslims of the rising Ottoman Empire. The Protestant Reformation is in full swing, and Philip is the Pope's champion in the fight to extinguish it. In the Low Countries, today's Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, which Philip's Habsburg family has ruled since the 1480s, ethnic and religious resistance is rising, And the crowning of Elizabeth I in England, where Philip had been king as recently as 1559 by virtue of marriage to Bloody Mary, has flipped old Blighty to apostasy. Philip is not yet at war with England, but Elizabeth and her proxies and privateers are hitting Spain and the Catholics at every opportunity, in the Low Countries, in France, and in the New World." Spain's economic lifeblood is the Western Hemisphere, which she dominates. The gold and silver and cash crops from the New World pay for Spain's war machine. Some of Mexico's silver goes from ports on the Pacific coast of Mexico to China, in trade for which Spain gets valuable luxuries such as silk and porcelain. More of it returns to Europe in huge convoys of treasure ships, which converge on Havana and then sail up the eastern seaboard of today's United States until they catch the westerlies across to Spain at roughly the latitude of Bermuda, which happens to be 32 degrees, 30 minutes north. That's the route Columbus discovered on the return home from his first voyage. Everybody, but especially France and England, wants to get their grubby little paws on Spanish treasure ships because, well, they're full of treasure. The second best option is to sink them because then at least Spain doesn't receive their cargo, which is very useful in the paying of the soldiers needed to wage Spain's many wars. Now, even though she is overstretched, nobody wants an actual war with Spain, at least not in 1566. France and England did not attack Spanish shipping directly. They used proxies much as the United States and the Soviet Union used proxies in Vietnam, Korea, Angola, and Afghanistan, and elsewhere to confront each other during the Cold War. In the 1560s, the most popular means was to issue licenses to the classier pirates, which would turn them into privateers. These licenses, called Letters of Mark, protected the privateers from prosecution in their own country— Of course, if a privateer was caught, the sponsoring monarchs would deny that they had authorized the raider in question. Why the hell wasn't I told about this place? Two words, Mr. President. Plausible deniability. Plausibly denied, so no casus belli and war thereby avoided. The privateers and their sponsoring monarchs looked at their maps and realized that it would be very useful to have a North American base at roughly... 32 degrees latitude, give or take a few degrees. That way, privateers could lurk in a harbor protected by an actual fort and emerge to torture the Spanish opportunistically. Quite apart from wanting Protestantism rather than Catholicism to become the dominant religion in North America, this was the reason that the French tried to establish bases at Charles Fort and Fort Caroline in 1562 and 1564. If religious considerations alone had controlled, Jean Ribaut and his Huguenots would have been better served going to New York Harbor and Narragansett, both of which they'd known about since Giovanni Verrazzano's voyage 40 years earlier. The Spanish also had maps. As previously reported, Pedro Menendez de Avilas had developed a plan for protecting the route home from the New World and pitched it to Philip in 1559. Menendez proposed building a series of forts along the coast of La Florida all the way up to the Chesapeake Bay. As recounted in episodes 27 and 28 of the History of the Americans podcast, Menendez's first step was to destroy the new French forts, kill all the Protestants, and found St. Augustine and St. Helena. St. Helena was on Paris Island, South Carolina, the site of Charles Fort, which is exactly the same latitude as Bermuda. As recounted in episodes 27 and 28, Menendez's first step was to destroy the new French forts, kill all the Protestants, and found St. Augustine and St. Helena. St. Helena was on Paris Island, South Carolina, the site of Charles Fort, which is exactly the same latitude as Bermuda. There was a second more speculative geopolitical consideration. Longstanding and attentive listeners will recall that in 1524... Berezano explored the east coast from a bit north of Charleston all the way to Maine and Nova Scotia. As he looked out from the top of his main mast across the outer banks of North Carolina to Pamlico Sound, he saw what he thought might be open ocean that connected to the Pacific and therefore East Asia. Ridiculous as it may seem to those of us who know the actual answer... As late as 1640, Europeans still believed in the possibility that such a sea passage might exist. If there were such a connection, it would be of surpassing value to the crown that controlled it. In this episode, we are going to look at the next Spanish moves in the region, all of which were designed to secure Spain's treasure fleets and interdict French, and potentially English, incursions into North America. These include Pedro Menendez's exploration of Florida proper, which we will only touch upon, the expeditions of Juan Pardo into the Carolinas and Tennessee from 1566 to 1568, and the catastrophic failure of a Jesuit mission to the entrance of the Chesapeake Bay, not far from the future site of Jamestown. None of these succeeded, but they provoked England's anxiety and fueled her ambitions, which in turn catalyzed Francis Drake's almost unbelievable mission of 1577 to 1580, Walter Raleigh's failed colony at Roanoke Island on the Outer Banks in 1587, and even the settlement at Jamestown in 1607. It all ties together. The French, having been killed or ejected, Pedro Menendez spent the better part of the next year exploring Florida from his base in St. Augustine, especially along the coast. He erected and garrisoned his forts according to his plan. Fort Caroline, he renamed San Mateo. Charles Fort became Santa Elena, and he built a series of new forts all the way around a mound key, which sits just offshore between Fort Myers and Naples. None of them survived much beyond 1569, and it would be all Spain could do to keep St. Augustine afloat. Menendez's exploration of Florida is recorded in the narrative written by his son-in-law, Gonzalo Salis de Maras, discovered in complete form only in 2012, and not translated and published until 2017. A link to David Arbezo's translation of this new manuscript is in the show notes. There's enough of interest there to do a couple of episodes, but I confess I'm a bit champing at the bit to get to the English, and do not want to test your patience or my own. However, there was one encounter from this period that's pretty interesting, so let's take a moment. In early 1566, Menendez sailed with more than 500 men for the west coast of Florida via Havana, according to Solis, looking for a passage between the Tortugas and the Keys. This strikes me as a bit strange, insofar as Ponce de Leon had discovered that route back in 1513. But that's an example of our modern sensibility, Today, when something is discovered, it remains discovered. Not so in the 16th century, when communication was so poor. The Spanish often had to discover something more than once. In any case, Menendez had heard by some means that the tough Calusa tribe, who had fought and deceived Ponce, Narvaez, Soto, and Cancer, held some Spanish people whom they had captured 20 years before. On reaching the west coast, somewhere south of Tampa Bay, he put 60 men in two brigantines, which were shallow draft boats suitable for coastal work. Now let's turn to Solis, who refers to Menendez as the Adelantado, for which I will say governor, because my pronunciation of Spanish is that lame. On the fourth day, as they sailed along the coast, a canoe approached Diego de Amaya's brigantine. He spoke and said, Spaniards, Christians, brothers, welcome. We've been expecting you for a week, for God and St. Mary told us you were coming. The Christian men and women who are here alive have sent me here with this canoe to wait for you in order to give you a letter I carry with me. Captain Diego and those who were with him in the brigantine were much delighted and pleased at having found those whom the governor was seeking and was so eager to find. He welcomed aboard the brigantine, this man, who transformed into an Indian, was painted and naked, only his private parts covered. The captain embraced him and asked him for the letter. The man took a cross out of the deerskin with which he'd covered his private parts. This is the rare situation in which one would want a fanny pack, and told the captain that this was the letter the captive Christian men and women were sending him beseeching him by the death that our Lord suffered on that cross to save us, not to pass by without going into that harbor and attempting to deliver them from the chieftain and take them to Christian lands. Meanwhile, the governor arrived with his brigantine, and the men came aboard. The governor heard from this Christian many more details about the condition of the Indians, the characteristics of that land, and all that had happened there. The governor went into the harbor and anchored so near the shore that they were able to jump ashore from the brigantine without wetting their shoes. There were said to be five Christian women and four Christian men in the village half a league from there, and farther inland two other men and one woman. Of More than 200 Christians from the fleet of the Indies shipwrecked in the country of this chieftain 20 years earlier, and they had all been taken to him. He and his father had killed them in their feasts and dances, sacrificing them to the devil. The governor did not dare to reveal to this Christian how he was planning to free the Christian men and women who were alive because it appeared to him that he knew little and whatever he said could be repeated to the chieftain. He only asked him to tell the chieftain that he was bringing many things for him and his wives and that he should come to see him. The next morning, the chieftain, knowing how few men the governor brought, came with about 300 Indian archers. Calusa chief Carlos, a name he apparently adopted for himself when his captives told him that their king was Emperor Carlos V, and his father before him, ritually murdered about 10 of these Spanish a year at festivals and such over the course of 20 years. Imagine living under these circumstances, knowing that your number would come up eventually and randomly. Yes, we know that the Spanish, in quotes, deserved it in some collective sense. As a people, they'd killed a lot of Indians and would keep doing so. But that doesn't mean that these individual shipwrecked Spanish earned their gruesome deaths. Their only crime was one we've warned about before. Don't get shipwrecked near Tampa Bay. In any case, Menendez and Carlos began a dance involving the usual exchange of presents and diplomatic niceties and veiled threats, and eventually Carlos agreed to surrender the dozen or so surviving Spanish. Carlos invited Menendez back to his house. Menendez smelled a trap, so he went armed. Back to Solis. The day after Chief Carlos departed from the brigantines, the governor went to eat with him, taking with him... 200 arquebusiers, a flag, two fifes and drums, three trumpets, a harp, a bowed vihuela. That was an early Spanish stringed instrument, like a viola. A psaltery, that's another medieval instrument. And a tiny dwarf he had with him, who was a great singer and dancer. The chief's house could easily fit 2,000 men inside without being very crowded. A couple of observations here. First, Chief Carlos had a huge house if it could hold a few hundred people, much less 2,000. You need about 16,000 square feet to hold 2,000 people both sitting and standing, even with no tables and other furniture. Even if Solis has overestimated the capacity of Carlos's house by a factor of five, you'd still need 3,200 square feet or a building 40 by 80 feet. Second, devoted and attentive listeners will recall that in slaughtering the French Huguenots the year before, Menendez had spared the musicians. Solis does not mention it, but I like to think that some of those Frenchmen, with their cultural attraction to the ironic, were along on this diplomatic mission and secretly amused to hear that the Calusa had ceremonially whacked almost 200 equally innocent Spanish. In any case, the state dinner went very well. The Indians were entranced by the music and requested that the musicians keep playing through the evening. Carlos sat with two women, one young and beautiful and the other older and very dignified. After a bit of embarrassing confusion, Menendez learned that the young and beautiful woman was Carlos's wife. The middle-aged, dignified woman was his sister and that Carlos had given the sister to the pious Menendez to be his wife. Now comes the tricky part, Percelis. The chief told him that since he had given his sister as a wife, he should go to a room nearby and rest with her, and if he did not, his Indians would be outraged, claiming that they and she were being mocked and that he did not value her much. In that village, there were more than 4,000 Indian men and women. The governor was somewhat distressed and told him through the interpreter that Christian men could not sleep with women who were not Christians. The chief replied that since he had taken him for his elder brother, he and his sister and his people were already Christians. This back and forth continued with a very sharp chief parrying every argument Menendez could muster. Eventually, it was agreed that Menendez, who was married in Spain and whose son-in-law was with him on this expedition would bring his new Indian wife with him back to Havana and have her baptized. She became known as Doña Antonia, and their marriage, scare quotes you cannot see, would forge a sort of brotherhood between the two men. One whose men that at that moment were killing many Indians far away, and the other who had ordered the killing of almost 200 Spanish over two decades. These two practical men would stay in touch for years and remain allied against mutual enemies in Florida. We do not know whether Menendez and Doña Antonio ever consummated their marriage. Menendez brought the rescued Spanish survivors back to Cuba, except for two Christian women who stayed with the Indians because they did not want to leave their children behind. Whether those children were of two Spanish parents or mestizos, of mixed Spanish and Indian parentage, is lost to us. But since Carlos didn't release the children, one can fairly imagine that they had Calusa fathers. Make of that what you will. Roughly concurrently with Menendez's fort-building romp around the peninsula of Florida, he dispatched Captain Juan Pardo to lead expeditions from Santa Elena into the Carolinas and Tennessee. From an article published in 1988 in the Florida Historical Quarterly by Florida historians Chester de Prada, Charles Hudson, and Marvin Smith, which I will refer to as de Prada et al., Menendez directed Pardo to explore the interior, where Soto had been earlier. Pardo was ordered to pacify the Indians and arrange for them to supply the Spanish with food to examine and describe the land, to look for gems and precious metals, and to establish a trail to the Spanish silver mines in Mexico. Remarkably, even though Alonso Alvarez de Pineda had, in 1519, sailed along the Gulf Coast all the way from southern Florida to Veracruz, and even though the Soto Expedition had wandered for four years in the vastness of the interior southeast, Menendez evidently believed that the distance from Santa Elena to Mexico was not great. Even at the end of the 16th century, officials in Florida believed it was only a few hundred miles overland from Florida to Mexico. Now, much of the scholarship around Pardo's expeditions is concerned with debating his route and that of his principal deputy. Getting that nailed is obviously important if you want to identify likely sites to dig for artifacts or discover subtle differences among local Indian tribes. But for our purposes, we are not going to dive into those details. Our concern is the larger geopolitical picture, and, of course, the usual Spanish cupidity and cruelty and body counts. On December 1st, 1566, Pardo sent out from Santa Elena on his first expedition with 125 soldiers. They seem to have wended their way north through South Carolina into the province of the Kovatachecki, whom you may remember from the Soto expedition in 1541 had been rich and led by a queen. No more. From there, Pardo moved up into central North Carolina, all along the way building small forts and leaving behind a few soldiers to garrison them. Then at some point in January, Pardo got a letter from Santa Elena calling him back to be on hand in case the French attacked in reprisal for their defeat at Fort Caroline. Pardo left behind a detachment of perhaps 30 men under the command of one Sergeant Moyano in central North Carolina and returned to Santa Elena on March 7, 1567. In early April, a letter arrived from Sergeant Moyano, who reported having fought the Chisca Indians. He claimed to have killed more than a thousand and to have burned 50 of their houses, while only two of his men were wounded. He further expressed an interest in pushing ahead and making further discoveries. According to the principal chronicler, Pardo agreed that Mayano should take 20 of his 30 men and search for further discoveries. Now back to de Prater et al. Before Moyano received Pardo's message, another Indian chief, presumably Asua threatened him by sending word that he was going to come over and eat Moyano, his soldiers, and even his dog. Moyano decided to attack. He took 20 soldiers and traveled four days along a mountain trail where they were astonished to find a town defended by a very high wooden palisade. Regular listeners will recall that Soto also ran into these fortified towns, most if not all of which had been built to defend against Indian adversaries, rather than in anticipation of the Spanish. Why precisely Soto's discoveries, large and small, were seemingly unknown to Team Pardo is a vexing mystery. Back to De Prater et al. Maiano claimed that he destroyed it, killing 1,500 Indians. By this time, Pardo's letter had caught up with him, and he marched four days farther to the island town of Chioa, which was probably a bit south of Knoxville, likewise surrounded by a palisade and very strong square towers. Moyano explored in the vicinity of Chiaha for 12 days before building a small fort for himself and his men. All this probably took place in April 1567. Given the generally low casualties in other fights with the Indians, such as Soto's expertly-led battles 25 years before, it is likely that Moyano was grossly exaggerating the number of Indians that he and his men killed during April 1567. The interesting thing is he thought it would make him look good to his boss, which tells you something about the state of Spanish treatment of the Indians under Menendez, now 75 years after Columbus. On May 25, 1567, Menendez again ordered Pardo to go into the interior to pacify the Indians, take possession of the land, and find an overland route to the mines of San Martin, to Zacatecas, and then return to Santa Elena by the following March. Here's the problem. By the overland route, as the crow flies, which involves turning left roughly at Houston. The distance from Paris Island to Zacatecas, Mexico, is almost 1,600 miles. Menendez's order was, once again, ignorant and impossible to execute, which apparently neither Menendez nor Pardo realized. Regardless, on September 1, 1567... Pardo and roughly 120 armed men departed Santa Elena for a roundabout trip through the Carolinas and into eastern Tennessee. The second Pardo expedition spent the next 10 months marching around the region and built and garrisoned at least six small forts in the interior, returning to Santa Elena as ordered by March 1568. None of the forts seemed to have survived past 1569 whether fallen to Indian reprisals or other deprivation. Pardo discovered nothing akin to the Mississippi of the Grand Canyon. The real historical importance of the Pardo expedition is for specialists. Their reports helped confirm the route of the Soto expedition and suggest places for archaeological digs. They are also evidence of significant declines in the Indian population of the region in the quarter century after Soto passed through. And not only because Pardo's men killed a lot of them. Nearly as I can tell in the United States, there is but one historical plaque near Morganton, North Carolina, that memorializes Pardo. The Chrysler Corporation never sold a Pardo sedan or any other Pardo-branded car. No federal commission convened to study the implications of his expeditions. There is no Pardo bridge over any of the rivers in South Carolina. Poor Pardo. The third notable Spanish move on the East Coast was a failed mission of a handful of Spanish Jesuits at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay in 1571, very close to the location of the English settlement of Jamestown 36 years later. If that were all there were to the story, then it would be of even less significance than Menendez cavorting around Florida and Pardo's substantial and yet inconsequential. Fort Building in the Carolinas in East Tennessee. It is not all there is to the story. The opening paragraph of a 1988 article by Charlotte Grady, now professor of history at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut, sets the stage well. In September 1570, a small band of Spanish Jesuits sailed into an estuary of the Bahia de Santa Maria and landed in Ahakan the Spanish names for what were later called the Chesapeake Bay and the land of Virginia. There, the Jesuits established a mission on the York River among the Algonquian inhabitants, intending to convert them to Catholicism. No soldiers accompanied these missionaries for protection. Their only means of communicating with the natives was through an interpreter, an Indian from that area who had spent some time in Mexico and Spain, we will have much opportunity to exercise patience, was the sober observation of one of the Jesuits, Father Luis de Quiros, as he surveyed the shore of Ahakon before disembarking. Much opportunity, perhaps, but as it turned out, little time. For the mission was destroyed when all its members were killed by the Indians five months later. The only survivors were a boy, Alonso de Olmos, and the Indian interpreter, who, in fact, led the attack against the unfortunate Jesuits. Thus ended the mission to Virginia. Soon after, all Jesuit activities ceased in the Spanish province of La Florida, which extended from present-day Florida to Newfoundland and which included the territory they called Ahakan. It's the story of the translator, known to his people as Paquiquinio, and eventually to the Spanish as Don Luis de Velasco, that most concerns us. Our history of Paquiquinio begins in the summer of 1561 when the Spanish ship Santa Catalina blew into the mouth of the Chesapeake in front of a storm. Santa Catalina had been sent to the region by Angel de Villafane, whom very attentive listeners will recall had succeeded to the command of Tristan de Luna's mission of 1559 which had been ordered to settle Pensacola on the Gulf Coast and then march across to Santa Elena and set up a base there ahead of the French, rather than after the fact. The crew of the Santa Catalina did the usual thing, which was to round up a couple of young Indian men. Supposedly they came on board voluntarily, but maybe it ain't so. In any case, the Spanish perceived one of them, Paquiquenio, to be of noble rank, and the agent of the Santa Catalina, Antonio Velasquez, decided to bring him back to King Philip's court in Madrid. Paquaquinio would turn out to be a very remarkable young man. Now, quoting from Anna Brickhouse's book, The Unsettlement of America, Translation, Interpretation, and the Story of Don Luis de Velasco. Alaska's evidently apprehended Pacoquinio's potential in a familiar story, an exotic arrival turned a favored royal subject, and accordingly requested and received an allowance for suitable clothing for the, quote, naked Ahokan native. Over the next five months, Pacoquinio stayed at the king's court, where he appears to have caught Philip's attention and earned his esteem. Juan de la Carrera, a Jesuit priest who knew Pacolquinio ten years later, observed that he had been educated at the court of King Philip II and had received him from many favors. Another priest noted that even by 1570, when Pacolquinio was living in Cuba, the native traveler was sponsored directly by the royal court. Quote, Our king in Spain had ordered him an allowance and clothed him, and the native knew so much that he confessed and received communion. All accounts agree that Paco Quineo was both highly fluent and very crafty and that he became, at some point over the course of his transatlantic education, quote, very ingenious in his argumentation, very subtle in his reasons, a not only proficient but highly effective speaker of Spanish, able to convince and persuade a variety of powerful interlocutors." By the next year, 1562, this eloquent Indian had persuaded Philip, the most powerful man in all Christendom, to send him back to his home on the Chesapeake, notwithstanding Viafane's report to the crown that the region wasn't worth settling. There not being a regular schedule of direct sailings from Seville to Virginia, Paquipinio, in a baptized and multilingual Mexican Indian he had befriended in his travels, made their way to Mexico, presumably then to catch the next ship to head up the Atlantic coast. There he was baptized and renamed Don Luis de Velasco after the then governor of New Spain. Unfortunately for Don Luis, baptism greatly complicated his ambition to return home. The local priests intervened and declared that Don Luis could not now go home without religious supervision. The concern, which was almost certainly genuine, was that apostasy was much worse in the eyes of God than paganism. A fallen away Christian would be condemned to hell. Arrangements had to be made to protect Don Luis from that risk by giving him the appropriate ecclesiastical support. Don Luis, nevertheless, grew in his understanding of Spanish culture and politics and continued to promote a return to the Chesapeake, By 1566, as Menendez is hunting for shipwreck survivors in the territory of Carlos and Pardo's men are tromping through the Carolinas, he had persuaded the local clergy of the merits of an evangelical mission to his homeland. Rather than a big military mission to the Chesapeake then being pushed by Pedro Menendez, the Spanish authorities decided to send two Dominican friars and 30 soldiers with Don Luis as a translator. This mission of 1566 failed under strange circumstances. The Dominicans got to the area, scoped it out from the sea, and decided to go back to Havana, claiming subsequently that a storm had pushed them out to sea. Solis, Menendez's brother-in-law, and it must be said propagandist, disparaged the friars for being too soft and afraid. This might have been the case, but as we have seen otherwise, the Dominican friars of New Spain were, as a group, some of the toughest men of faith the world has ever seen. Professor Brickhouse offers an alternative explanation, that Don Luis, finally on his way home, subverted the expedition because he was, justifiably, worried that the 30 soldiers would kill his people. It is a reasonable speculation, for in his now five years among the Spanish, and also among Indians from around the Americas who had suffered under the Spanish, Don Luis had no doubt learned what would happen next if Spanish soldiers visited his homeland. At this time, the various Christian brotherhoods concerned with converting Indians to Christianity were coming around to the point of view that the ugly and unchristian behavior of Spanish soldiers, rather than Indian reticence, was their biggest obstacle. Leading Jesuits in particular documented the depredations of Spanish soldiers and wrote letters complaining about their violence and depravity. This irritated Pedro Menendez to no end and brought him into bureaucratic and political conflict with the Society of Jesus. The respected and worldly Don Luis, now in Havana, almost certainly understood this dynamic and almost certainly exploited it. He saw an opportunity to go home without any soldiers, if only the Jesuits got their way. Eventually, Father Juan Baptista de Segura, the leader of the Jesuits in the region, secured permission to go to the Chesapeake with a handful of Jesuits and set up a mission. Menendez offered Segura 100,000 soldiers for protection, which Segura declined. By 1570, Don Luis had his ticket home along with Segura and another priest, three Jesuit brothers, three layman teachers of the order, and a Spanish Creole boy, Alonso de Almos. They had no guards, not even a mall cop. Safety never takes a holiday. It did this time. The expedition left Santa Elena in August, 1570 and arrived at the mouth of the Chesapeake, the homeland of Don Luis, in September 1570, they began building crude housing in a small chapel. The ship lingered in the harbor for two or three days and then went back to Havana with a letter from Father Quiro's, which is the only document from the mission of Ahakon. Now back to Professor Grady's account. The Jesuits arrived in Ahakon in September 1570 and set up their mission near Don Luis's tribe. Their reception by the Indians, as reported by Father Kiros in the only letter from the mission, was not unfriendly. Don Luis's relatives were astonished to see him and believed that he had returned from the dead. Don Luis showed promise of being a good intermediary by arranging for the baptism of a younger brother who was near death. In spite of this good beginning, other aspects of the missionary's situation were less auspicious. Ahakon was not the prosperous land that Don Luis had described. Six years of drought had reduced the Indian stores of maize and had scattered those members of the tribe who had not died of starvation. The Jesuits were in no position to help the Indians, having given most of their supplies to the crew on the voyage from Santa Elena after a supply ship had been lost. Whether the Indians' situation was as desperate as they maintained, they were unwilling to support the Jesuits unless they received payment in return. Now we learn what happened, this time not from Father Kuros' letter, but from the subsequent testimony of the boy Alonso. Back to Professor Grady. Five days after their arrival in Ahakan, Don Luis abandoned the missionaries and returned to his tribe, leaving the Jesuits without a translator. As the winter advanced, the Spaniards' situation worsened. Finally in early February, Segura sent 3 of the missionaries to trade for corn with the Indians and try to persuade Don Luis to return and help them make conversions. Don Luis did promise to return, but he and a group of Indians followed the 3 missionaries and killed them on February 4th before they reached the mission. Segura and the rest, except for Alonso, killed by Don Luis and his companions at the mission five days later. The Indians then plundered the Spanish settlement, taking the missionaries' clothes and the sacred vessels for saying mass and ripping up their books and scattering them to the winds. So how do we know all this happened? In the spring of 1571, within a couple of months of the February massacre, Brother Salcedo from Santa Elena tried to bring supplies to the mission. When his ship arrived at the mouth of the York River, they were greeted with the astonishing sight of Indians parading on the shore, vested in cassocks and religious robes. Because the Indians threatened to attack them, the Spanish did not land, but returned to Santa Elena. The Jesuits understandably feared the worst, but a rescue mission was delayed because of the political conflict with Pedro Menendez, he confiscated a first Jesuit supply ship in December 1571 to feed the starving garrisons at St. Augustine and Santa Elena. Ultimately, the next Spanish ship to visit the Chesapeake carried Menendez himself, who stopped there on his way back to Spain to investigate the fate of the Jesuits personally, presumably because he was worried he would have to answer for his failure to support the mission when confronted by Spanish Jesuits or worse, King Philip. Menendez arrived at the Chesapeake in August 1572. Indians there confirmed that all the Jesuits were dead and that Alonzo was living under the protection of a nearby chief. Menendez took a bunch of hostages and demanded that the Indians surrender Alonzo and Don Luis to his custody. After a few hangings, the Indians coughed up Alonzo, but not Don Luis. Historians speculate that Don Luis may have been too important to the Indians to surrender. Or, alternatively, that he fled into the interior knowing that the Spanish would want revenge. Everything we know about what happened to the mission comes from Alonso's testimony, since the only letter had been dispatched two or three days before Don Luis defected in September 1570. The gruesome story of this Creole boy who had lived among the Indians for 18 months was so graphic that it became the stuff of legend— The dead Jesuits became martyrs, and in Spanish lore, Don Luis was a murderous traitor. The result was that neither the Jesuits nor the Spanish returned to settle the Chesapeake, leaving Don Luis's people free of European incursion for another 35 years, until John Smith and the Virginia Company expedition arrived to settle at Jamestown. Of course, just as Don Luis was a traitor to the Spanish, he was a patriot to his own people. His brilliance with language and high EQ, as it were, not only bought him his ticket home, but taught him that the Spanish could only be resisted through guile. In this regard, Don Luis joined a long line of Indian guides and interpreters who had delayed or misdirected the Spanish away from their own people. Attentive listeners will remember that Indian guides and translators repeatedly sent Narvaez and Soto on lethal wild goose chases. The Turk led Coronado deep into Kansas, hundreds of miles away from his people. And Indians may have misled Esteban when he scouted ahead for Friar Marcos. The supposedly reliable Indian translator Magdalena betrayed Friar Cancer at Tampa Bay. With this track record, the apparent faith of the Spanish and their supposedly friendly Indian allies looks across the centuries like sheer folly. But maybe in the end, it reflected their own abiding faith in the power of Christian conversion. Thank you again for listening. 30 episodes along, we are now at the threshold of English North America, which in the coming weeks will cover piracy. The Astonishing Francis Drake, The Lost Colony at Roanoke Island, and soon enough, Jamestown. If you enjoy this podcast, please spread the word on social media and thank you to those who have done so already. And tell all your coolest friends. Actually, maybe not the coolest friends. As usual, if you have questions, comments, corrections, pats on the back, or eruptions of outrage, please send me an email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Or a message via our Facebook page, which can be found by searching at History of the Americans. Or comment on our website, which is www.thehistoryoftheamericans.com.